Welcome back to the podcast, Surgery ICU Rounds. I've been uh, gone on some family vacations for the past couple of weeks, and I appreciate your patience. I hope you've enjoyed your summer as well, if I say summer. We're going to pick up today with the um, um, topic of thermal injury and uh, some cover- some issues of soft tissue infection. This is part of a talk that um, I'm giving at the Society for Critical Care Medicine's Board Review course in Chicago. It's a pretty big topic, and frequently, like these uh, board uh, review courses go, they're often trying to get a tremendous amount of material in a very short period of time. So I'm producing this podcast somewhat to augment the information that's uh, uh, been presented uh, in the presentation at the um, Critical Care Academy, as well as make it available to uh, our residents at Vanderbilt or anyone else who may um, come across somebody who has a thermal injury. This is clearly something that has a a great interest to me uh, since the majority of my practice is burn surgery and burn critical care. Burns, roughly about 2 to 2.5 million people are burned in the United States each year. The vast majority of these patients receive their care in the local community, either with their primary care providers or their local emergency departments. Mortality is the highest in the very young and the very old, or what we like to call the extremes of age. 38% of burns are less than the age of 15 years of age. Now, this is something that people need to keep in mind, is that about one out of five children that a, uh, a mixed adult and pediatric burn unit sees, uh, excuse me, one out of five patients will be a child. One out of five of those children will be victims of abuse or neglect. Next to beating children, burning them is a very common type of child abuse. And one of the first things people want to do when they come across a patient who has a burn, um, large or small, is to try to determine burn depth. And that's, uh, don't fall into that trap. And the reason why I say that is that estimating burn size and estimating burn depth is deceptively difficult. If you talk to a provider in a burn center, uh, a nurse or a physician who has a lot of experience, and they'll look at a patient who comes in, say, today, well, what day is today? Today's say Wednesday, um, and say, you know, what is this burn? Some of them will say, well, you know, it looks like it's partial, or it looks like it's going to be deep partial thickness, and they're kind of hedging. And the reason why they're hedging is because they honestly, in, in uh, particularly in partial thickness injuries, can't really exactly tell you what is that burn depth, that the appearance of that burn at time zero is going to look different at 8 hours, look different at 16 hours, and look different at 24 hours. Frequently, particularly in emergency departments uh, or in offices where a patient may not have adequate degree of analgesia, there may be some residual soot or some dirt on the wound or some burned up clothing, you may look at it and say, that is clearly a third-degree burn. And once you get the patient uh, with an adequate anesthesia or analgesia and you clean the burn up, you say, no, this is a glistening partial thickness injury. Now, the converse is true as well, is that frequently we'll get called to an emergency department. We'll go down and we'll see a patient who's got, say, uh, looks like a pretty significant burn uh, to the uh, hand, like third degree on the back of the, the hand. But it looks like to, to many it's just a superficial burn uh, to the arm. But once you really start to rub it and scrub it, that whole upper... Uh, epidermal layer kind of just sloughs off and what you have underneath it is a white leathery third degree burn. My advice to a provider who is referring burn patients to a burn surgeon or a burn unit is don't really um, come out and say this is a second or third degree burn because what will happen is that the patient will come to a burn clinic or come to a burn unit, will determine that a burn is third degree uh, either after uh, further debridement or after a period of maturation of 24 to 48 hours. And the patient will say, you know, my hometown doc said this was a first or second degree burn. And, and why are you telling me it's a third degree burn? Well, the one thing that we never want 
want to really do is say, well, you know, the burn, maybe that provider hasn't seen a burn in two or three years. And that's certainly not very professional. We'd like to say, well, you know, the burn kind of matures and over 24 to 48 hours, it looks a little bit different than it did when your hometown doctor saw that patient. We're all familiar with the nomenclature of how we define burns, first, second, third, and fourth degree burns. Most burn surgeons and burn nurses, you'll hear that you use the term superficial, partial, or full thickness, which corresponds very easily to first, second, and third degree burns. Insurance companies, interesting, will call them first, second, third degree burns, so guess what we'll call them? first, second, third degree burns. As an aside, uh, a condition of low serum sodium, I was taught in medical school, is called hyponatremia, but I actually had a billing provider show me once that it, uh, on a billing notice, it was hyposodiumemia. So if we want to get reimbursed for the care that we provide, we will call it hyposodiumemia. First degree burns, we know what they're like. They're typically like sunburns. They're red. Um, they're painful. They'll often heal on their own. They may require some uh, um, aloe vera gel, some uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, increasing uh, oral fluids. Uh, sometimes, though, when you see children who come into the hospital and they have a burn over, say, 15-20% of their body, they can get uh, rather dehydrated and have a general feeling of malaise. It will end up emitting those children. Second-degree burns we're familiar with. They're glistening uh, burn. They're very painful. Uh, they'll have the blisters that require debridement. Second-degree burns or partial thickness injuries will typically heal by themselves over a period of two to three weeks. The issue always comes up with what to do about blisters. Uh, if you're not comfortable debriding the blisters, allow somebody who is comfortable with them to debride them, but we will debride blisters. There's a lot of fallacy in, out there about what uh, that when you do that, you're taking off this biological dressing. Well, the epidermis that's burned is not uh, normal tissue. The um, uh, blister fluid has a lot of pro-inflammatory fluids in there. Uh, they also push this pressure on the wound bed, making the patient more uncomfortable. And furthermore, it really acts as a physical barrier that doesn't allow you to apply the topical antibiotics. Uh, if you take some silvadine or bacitracin or whatever variety of uh, topical agents that you want to use and you put it on that um, burn that has the blister on it, well, you're only putting it on the, the shedded epidermis and that one and a half or two centimeters of blister fluid. Once you debride the epidermis and remove the blister fluid, uh, you'll have that uh, antibiotic directly on the wound bed. Full thickness burns uh, involve all layers of the skin, the epidermis uh, and the dermis. Uh, they can uh, go into the underlying subcutaneous fat and muscle. Uh, when they do that, well, typically using the first, second, third degree nomenclature, call those fourth degree burns. Things you need to be mindful of that when you get very deep full thickness burns, particularly involving the extremities, is that they can cause breakdown of the muscle uh, and when you have breakdown of the muscle you'll have myoglobin in the urine pigmented urine and when you have muscle destruction uh, releasing myoglobin you'll also have elevated potassium I remember walking into emergency room somebody had been entrapped in an automobile accident they had just horrible third degree burns fourth degree burns uh, of the um, uh, extremities we were going to uh, oral trachically intubate the patient just to make the management more simple and, and really because the patient was going to have a tr tremendous amount of systemic edema over the ensuing hours and we really wanted to provide the patient with a deep plane of anesthesia. But again, that wasn't a crash intubation. The patient didn't have a saturation of 55%. And so we had time and I, I wanted the Foley catheter to go in before um, uh, we considered how we were going to intubate the patient. And I, and I remember one of the fellows saying, Jeff, 
you know, A airway comes before F or Foley. And when I proved my point, when the Foley went in and it just basically rolled out just bloody uh, myoglobin can't contain urine. Well, clearly what that would indicate too is that if you've got muscle destruction, you're probably going to have an element of hyperkalemia. The drug that's most commonly used in rapid sequence or pharmacological assisted intubations is succinylcholine. Um, you will recall that one of the indications and contraindications for the use of succinylcholine is hyperkalemia. Uh, the fasciculation of the depolarizing agent uh, succinylcholine will cause an elevation of serum potassium. And you'll often uh, recall that uh, succinylcholine is contraindicated in people who have, or, or contraindicated as well, in people who have renal failure, hyperkalemia, um, paraplegic and quadriplegics in burn patients. Let's explain why that is. If we look at paraplegic as a quadriplegic, you've got a motor endpoint that accepts that uh, receptor signal of acetylcholine from a nerve. And in the face of paraplegic or quadriplegic, the motor endpoint is saying, hey, we're not seeing a whole lot of action here. We're not seeing a whole lot of stimulation. So let's upregulate the number of receptors we put at that motor endpoint. So in the case of uh, somebody who uh, is, like I said, has a spinal cord injury, the density and the number of ACH receptors at the motor implant increases. So long here comes succinylcholine, it binds to those ACH receptors on the motor implant, and you get this exaggerated response. Now what happens in burn patients is that you see an upregulation and the presentation of acetylcholine receptors along the entire myofibril. So you get an exaggerated contraction of the um, muscle fiber when you give acetylcholine. Now, in fairness to those people who want to use uh, 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 anectine or succinylcholine, I'm sorry, when you want to, in fairness to those individuals, that upregulation of ACH receptors may not occur for, say, 24 to 48 hours. So the reason why we're cautioning the use of the use of succinylcholine in the early burn patient is because of the possibility of hyperkalemia. So if you see somebody who's got massive burns of their arms and legs, approach them much like you would a patient who has a crush injury. Now, an important thing to know is that um, a lot of anesthesiologists would refrain using uh, uh, succinylcholine uh, in patients following a, a burn injury for a year and sometimes two. There seems to be a lot of conflict in the anesthesia literature about that. So clearly indicating that perhaps it's a safe thing to try to avoid if you can. In addition to knowing the depths of injuries of the burn patients, there are also zones of a burn injury. And basically this is a, imagine a bullseye that transects uh, the skin. The center part, most portion of a full thick injury is known as a zone of coagulation, also known as the zone of necrosis. In this area, the tissue is dead. The vessels are thrombosed. And around this zone is the zone of stasis. Okay, you know what stasis means. The blood flow in this area is stagnant. It is not moving. The cells in this zone are vulnerable. That if we, by improving perfusion, improving oxygen delivery, we can keep these cells alive. And in doing so, we will make the burn less deep and smaller in its surface area. If we do not take care of these cells by under-resuscitation or over-resuscitation or these pressure or ice or things like that, that will sacrifice the cells in this area, making the burn larger and burn deeper. The zone of hyperemia is around this zone. It's the outermost zone. You see an increase in blood flow. Now, I want to focus again on the zone of stasis. Just change gears for a little bit. Let's imagine we have somebody who comes, they're in your ICU, and they have an acute myocardial ischemia. One of the things that we like to do is what? Protect their heart rate. Because we know that by protecting their heart rate, we decrease myocardial oxygen consumption, and we have this penundrum of tissue in the myocardium that's vulnerable, or we can basically preserve myocardial mass. 
However, let's go along and now let's, instead of give the patient beta blockade to protect their rate, let's give them something like isoprel and take their heart rate from, say, 100 up to 150. If you're listening to this podcast while driving your car, you're probably rearing into a guardrail at this point in time. You would never do this because why? What does it do? It sacrifices vulnerable cells. Well, take your hand and imagine what happens when you put it in a bucket of ice. The vessels in your hands, the digital vessels, will vasoconstrict. Now take that same ice and apply it to a burn, and what will happen to the blood vessels in the stonostasis? They constrict. And when they constrict, what happens to oxygen delivery? It decreases. What happens to the cells in the zonostasis? They are sacrificed. Your burn is made larger. I will often hear people say, well, you know, ice feels good. Well, it is true. Ice feels good. One of the things I learned as a surgical resident is if I'm going to suture somebody in the emergency department with a minor laceration prior to injecting things like the lidocaine, if somebody applies ice uh, to that area, what will happen is it makes the injection of the lidocaine uh, go more uh, more simplistic. Same thing as the same concept with ethyl chloride. You spray an area with ethyl chloride for a needle biopsy. causes some anesthetic. If I am burned, uh, or let's change the gears a little bit, men, ladies, um, if you're having uh, childbirth, you can have have ice or you can have narcotics. Make your choice. Uh, if I'm a burn patient, don't give me ice. Give me uh, something narcotic analgesia. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's good for you. And that should bring back some memories from college. Other things that will make that uh, zonostasis vulnerable, dehydration, as we said, for under, under resuscitation, over resuscitation will uh, as well. Now, the burn, the third-degree burns, as we mentioned, uh, are thick, they're leathery, and contrary to popular misperception, they have pain. Do not use that as a metric as to whether um, a patient has a third-degree burn or not. We estimate uh, burn size using things like the rule of nines. Each major surface area on an adult is roughly 9%. Uh, children, it's uh, uh, different. Children are proportionally different. They're not little adults. They're little adults with really big heads, uh, and they will grow into um, their, uh, their body. Um, so typically there you need to use something like a Lumbrowder chart. Now there are things like topical antibiotics, and the most common one is silver sulfadiazine. Um, this actually came up on my general surgery oral boards and some of the complications of silver sulfadiazine. They didn't know I was a, a burn fellow and had done a trauma fellowship after before that, so it was actually convenient. But uh, silver sulfadiazine, one of the most common things we see is leukopenia, a drop in the white count. It's very transient. You stop the silver you stop the silvadine, it goes away. It really has poor uh, uh, eschgar penetration. If you're putting it on a patient, it does feel better, though, uh, once you uh, put it on a burn. It is a sulfa drug, so don't give it to patients who have known sulfa sensitivities. And as uh, somebody who, on a related note, if you're taking care of somebody who has Stephen Johnson's or toxic epithermal necrolysis and they have open wounds, don't be putting silvidine on it. Uh, the other thing that is important to know is that the um, G6PD deficiency uh, is the metabolic um, uh, defect in African Americans that occurs at the same rate as cystic fibrosis does in Caucasians, about one in six patients. And it is contraindicated with patients who have a known G6PD deficiency, it will cause hemolysis. And you don't want to use it in pregnancy. Uh, you can really parse this, and uh, if you look at the uh, inserts, they'll say don't use silver sulfadiazine in the second and third trimester or the first uh, couple months of, pre- of uh, uh, life because it can cause issues with the I stay away from it totally as somebody is 
pregnancy. They don't get silvidine, and we don't give silvidine to infants. Sulfamylon is a mafinide acetate. Uh, this is not a sulfa drug. It has sulfa drug in name only when we talk about sulfamylon. So if you're using a patient who has a known sulfa allergy and people start having um, issues, that's, that, that's the uh, naming of it. It is painful on application because it has very good Eschgar penetration. It comes in a liquid and it comes in a cream. Um, sulfamylon uh, or mafinide acetate is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, so it can create some acid-base problems, uh, namely metabolic acidosis. Bacitracin is readily available. It's inexpensive. It has good antimicrobial coverage. Bactroban, on the other hand, uh, there's some data that shows that its gram-positive coverage may not be as good as bacitracin. It's about 10 times more expensive. Silver nitrate uh, is used as a 0.5% solution. It is painless. It has a great antimicrobial spectrum. It does cause some electrolyte imbalances, namely hyponatremia, and this can be rather quickly. So if you're taking care of a small child and you are using silver nitrate, there's only a few centers in the country that I'm aware of that still use it, uh, you need to be kind of mindful of the sodium. It will drop pretty precipitously. The other problem with silver nitrate is it discolors absolutely everything. Um, uh, it's uh, basically that same black, tarry uh, feel of an x-ray film. It'll also discolor um, non-burn areas of skin. So you need to make sure that uh, your surgeons are involved because you don't want to be discoloring their donor sites because it'll be hard for them to determine, or difficult I should say, to determine what is a donor site and what is a burn. The advantage of silver nitrate is it's really, really inexpensive. Gelomycin can be used for burns. Uh, things you need to consider that does promote some resistance. Uh, betadine or providone iodine, really no application for burns. It's just a horrible thing to use on an open wound. There are silver-based antibiotic dressings like silvidine. I'm sorry, not silvidine, but things like Acticote, Aquacel. These are dressings um, that are impregnated uh, with silver ion. Acticote will say it's coated with a nanocrystalline. Basically, when these dressings get wet, uh, the uh, silver precipitates out into a um, ionic silver. You'll hear that various salesmen say ours has greater antimicrobial activity. These are devices. They're not drugs. They've been approved by the FDA and my understanding as a device, which means uh, safety, not efficacy. So if people start laying the sales uh, spiel on you, you start asking them, uh, are we talking about drugs or devices? One of the things that's really changed dramatically in burn care, perhaps in the last maybe 10 years, is the idea of early or aggressive surgical excision. Um, Herndon's textbook uh, really says that early excision is perhaps the greatest contributor to improved survival. Now, ICU doctors will say, well, come on, you know, we've got improvements in antibiotics, we've got improvements in ventilators, fluid management, and that's all very true. Um, but uh, what we've seen is a, a diametric change in the surgical approach of these wounds. Um, used to be that burns didn't, you know, a big burn man not gone to the operating room for five days post-injury because we had to resuscitate them in the post-resuscitation phase and get them stable to go to the operating room. Some people would say that early excision is three to five days. Um, my personal uh, idea of an early excision and somebody is perhaps within 48 hours. Um, and the dead tissue is an inflammatory generator. If somebody presented to your ICU and they had a foot of ischemic bowel, uh, you would say, we need to operate on this patient. We need to do it expeditiously. The bowel can perforate, but also what is that bowel doing? That bowel is elaborating pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is creating a surge response. Well, what difference does it make if it's a foot of bowel or something as simple as an appendix versus a patient who's laying in a meter and a half uh, square meters of necrotic burn tissue, which is, again, elaborating the same pro-inflammatory cytokines as perhaps the gangrenous appendix. Historically, we have been taught that uh, keep burns excisions limited to less than 20 
20% total body surface area or under two hours of operation. Uh, these were... Um, these recommendations were really made decades ago prior to significant advances in, in perioperative care and in the operating room uh, with um, uh, really skilled anesthesiologists and things like pulse oximeters uh, and intravascular monitoring, whatever your positions are on that. And I, I don't know that you would need to say that you need to limit your excision to 20%. I'd say that there's clearly a lot of individuals who are doing excisions larger than that and they're doing it very safely. Prompt burn excision reduces the incidence of the surge response, decreases length of stay, reduces septic complications and mortality. And despite significant advances in critical care, early burn wound excision has been attributed most for the reduction in burn mortality. And that's from Herndon's uh, textbook of uh, burn care um, in 2002. Also, um, Basil Pruitt wrote a similar um, um, recommendations in the World Journal of Surgery back in 1998. Again, not new concepts, but uh, concepts that are not uh, well um, established throughout the country. In 1974, we're talking 33 years ago, 1974, Berkey and Massachusetts General uh, did early burn excisions, and he decreased the mortality from, from 44% to 7%. Um, early excision decreased the length of stay by almost half, and that's Berkey Journal of Trauma, 1974. Immediate surgical excision is uh, safe with minimal adverse effects. The other thing it does is it abrogates a hypermetabolic response. Once we have the burn excised, there are several things that we could do. We could try uh, doing initial skin grafts, what we call autografting. And typically with a large burn, what's actually something we'll try to avoid early on. If you imagine the burn eschar, the eschar itself, an unexcised burn, really has no ability to retain heat or fluid. And the example that I often use is a house in the wintertime, say in Minnesota, with the windows up. If you have the house with the windows up and you have the thermostat set at, say, 72 degrees or, or 68 degrees or 66 degrees, whatever, whatever it is that your heart desires... I just know that if I say 72 degrees, somebody will email me and say that I'm not being green enough. Um, but what will happen is you will burn a tremendous amount of fuel to try to maintain that temperature. But you may, in certain parts of that house, keep that temperature close to your, your set point of, say, 68 degrees. If you close the windows, you're going to conserve more fuel uh, and maintain the same temperature. If you do all these insulating things about putting plastic on the windows and, and, and sealing uh, with the weather stripping and so forth, again, you're losing less heat to the windows. This seems uh, reasonably obvious to anybody, uh, but the same principles apply to people who have large wounds, be it a burnt wound or an open abdomen. Providing some element of coverage to that wound is going to decrease your evaporative losses, it's going to decrease your protein losses, and that's going to decrease your metabolic rate and you're going to expend less fuel. And, that, that, and the fuel that I'm talking about is protein. And that protein can be used to build visceral muscle to help or maintain visceral muscle for that matter, to get you off a ventilator, to make things like neutrophils and so forth so that you can go out and fight infections. There are various agents that we use. We can use things like uh, autografts or split thing, skin grafts. Uh, we can use cadaver skin. We can use uh, xenografts or pig skin. There's also some synthetic materials out there called um alloplastic material, things like um, uh, bioburn, which is a synthetic fabric of nylon and silicone that acts as an artificial skin, and in doing so closes the window of the house, trying to maintain some heat. In 1938, Bettman was the first to use allografts, using two children with burns over 60% of the body. Uh, Weber demonstrated autograph take in 1944. 
and we've seen it uh, progress throughout uh, burn care. The benefits, as we mentioned, are reduction in water, electrolyte and protein loss, reduction in energy requirement, reduction in wound infection rates, reduction in pain, conservation uh, of autographs uh, uh, so that we have better take, and improved physiology and welfare. And again, we have this concept well-established in burn care. We don't see it so much well-established for things like open abdomens, uh, where somebody's got a large uh, wound to their abdomen, it's granulating, uh, maybe some fistulas, and, and you can get things like um, allograft um, or xenograft to take and, and decrease some of that energy expenditure. Now, there are some uh, what we call decompressive procedures that may need to be done early in the, the care of a burn patient, particularly in areas of circumferential burns of the trunk or circumferential burns of the extremities. Um, a circumferential uh, full thickness burn of an arm or a leg is a limb-threatening problem. And the reason why that is is that if you imagine a hot dog in a microwave, uh, when a hot dog in a microwave and you heat it too long, what happens is you see the, the, micro, the hot dog basically kind of explode apart. That the tissue inside it swells and it starts to tear apart the casing of the hot dog. Well, your leg um, caught in a fire acts very much like that, that the underlying tissues, the subcutaneous tissues, and uh, the muscle will expand kind of like the hot dog in the microwave. But unlike the hot dog where the casing um, is uh, very flyable and uh, tears, you will see the, the skin will actually contract. So you've got increasing volume uh, and a, a decreasing uh, increasing volume of the muscle and so forth and a constantly decreasing volume uh, by uh, the, the, the skin contracting. If you imagine somebody's got a traumatic brain injury and their brain is swelling, at least the volume of the skull remains constant for the most part. It's not contracting at the same time. So what will happen is, is as the muscle swells, it begins to put pressure on the vein um, and the vein is obstructed to you know, whatever central venous pressure is or peripheral venous pressure in that case, maybe five, six millimeters of mercury. And so now you've got blood flow flowing in with no blood flow flowing out, creating basically a venous tourniquet. And the pressure continues to build even at a faster rate until the artery becomes compressed. And this is a limb-threatening condition. And what needs to be done is escharotomies. It typically need to be done within four hours. Um, uh, get the patient to a surgeon who knows how to do it. Uh, it's a very straightforward one. I'll give you a word of advice if the patient's covered with gasoline. Don't use electric cautery. I've come across patients where that was done. In those circumstances, you can just use a cold scalpel. But clearly, if a patient's in your emergency room, they should have been decontaminated before that. Uh, now, this is more of a problem uh, on the trunk, where as the uh, burn ash guard begins to contract, it's much like a boa constrictor on someone's chest, and you'll see dramatic drops in their uh, pulmonary compliance. Uh, maybe difficult or impossible to ventilate. In those circumstances, you need to do um, escherotomies uh, of the uh, chest wall. And when we've done these, it's amazing how quickly you'll see uh, marked improvement in the uh, pulmonary compliance. Now changing gears to the idea of burn resuscitation. Burn resuscitation is not trauma resuscitation. It is, um, the way we try to do burn resuscitation it is a very systematic uh, way um, keep in mind that a burn is a systematic injury. It is not an injury. It's isolated to the skin. It's perhaps the most um, uh, devastating full-body injury that a, a body will, will have. And after the event of a trauma, for instance, somebody, you'll see an increase in cardiac output, an uh, increase in systemic vascular resistance. You'll see shunting of blood from one area to the next. You'll see that the, um, the synthetic uh, production of various proteins will be those proteins that will help with the uh, um, 
maintaining uh, coagulating ability and so forth, but that's not the case with a major burn. With a major burn, you'll basically see uh, the body just throw up its arms and, and try to give up. You see maximal edema in small burns is about 8 to 12 hours, and in large burns about 12 to 24 hours. Now, the hemodynamic response following a burn injury, animal studies have showed that without resuscitation, about a third to a half of uh, a decrease in the extracellular fluid by 18 hours. Cardiac output uh, decreases to roughly 30% of the control. Uh, actually, let me, say that again. let me restate that. In burns, about 30%. So these aren't really horribly large burns. 30%, you know, they're big burns to people every day, but for a burn center, 30% burn is not really considered, you know, it's not like an 80 or 90% burn, but if at four hours after injury, your cardiac output is 25% of control. Stated another way, you see a 75% decrease in the cardiac output. At 18 hours, you're roughly at 40% control, or stated another way, you're, you see a decrease of 60% from control. Early studies have shown that in the first 24 hours, plasma volume changes were independent of the fluid type. We're using crystalloid or colloid, and therefore we don't really see much um, benefit in, in colloid in the first 24 hours. That's the idea here. You'll talk about leaky capillaries. There's been some good studies out of the UK that show that that capillary leak may seal uh, within 12 hours of injury. There's a great article by Jeff Saffel in Journal of Burn Care and Rehab, 2007. We've done a podcast on it earlier um, about fluid creep and burn resuscitation and and in that article, he gives the uh, arguments about uses of colloid for burns. Do not delay resuscitation. Keep in mind that the formulas that we use are formulas only. You want to maintain adequate urine output of roughly 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour in adults. In children, in young children and very old adults, we like to maintain a um, one, mill, 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour rate of urine output there because their urine, their uh, kidneys don't have the concentrating ability, so they need to maintain a higher urine output. They need no more and they need no less. We are very good at being sensitive to low urine outputs in patients like this. We are not very good, I think, uh, uh, when it comes to being sensitive to high urine outputs. If you're resuscitating a burn patient and you've got fluids going at 600 an hour and they're making 200 cc's of urine an hour, they're perhaps getting too much fluid. You need to start dialing back the fluids. Give them what they need. Don't give them any more because the edema that you will create by excessive fluid administration will complicate their care. The Parkland formula, which is uh, perhaps the most popular um, uh, fluid resuscitation formula of burns, is 4 cc's per kilo per total body surface area burn. You figure out the burn size of second and third degree burns. You uh, then take that burn size and then um, uh, being 50% times 4 cc's per kilo, TBSA and then add in the patient's weight. That'll give you a total 24-hour fluid requirement. Half of that fluid should be given in the first eight hours from the time of injury. Therefore, if a patient doesn't get to you for two hours, you need to make they maintain the balance of that first 50% of fluid in the remaining six hours. The balance of that is then given over the next 16 hours. As we said earlier, children are not little adults. They're little adults with really big heads, but they're also much more spherical, and, and adults are much more cylindrical. That means they have a higher uh, surface area to body mass ratio, and that creates greater evaporative losses and heat losses. Children maintain blood pressure longer at the expense of their tachycardia. Therefore, what will happen is they will maintain their hemodynamic stability, a term that I absolutely hate. They'll maintain their hemodynamic compensation until they come to the point of physiological exhaustion and they'll totally decompensate. 
The other thing that's different about children is they have very limited glycogen stores. Uh, therefore, when we resuscitate children, they need more fluid, and they need fluid that contains dextrose solutions. So the fluid that we use typically when we resuscitate adults is lactated ringers. We don't use normal saline because of the hyperchloremia. Giving somebody a lot of saline will create, therefore creating a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which we mentioned about in our last podcast. And in children, what we do is we give them their maintenance fluids in D5LR. That way we're giving them more fluids to compensate for their higher surface area to body mass ratio, and we're also giving them a dextrose-containing solution because of their limited glycogen reserves. Merrill in the American Journal of Surgery back in 1986 basically demonstrated that children require more fluids, roughly about 5.8 mLs per kilo per TBSA, versus roughly 4.2 milliliters uh, for adults. And again, all, keep in mind, all formulas are retrospective and only serve as a guide. There is a um, possibility that some mild hypertonic solutions uh, may reduce the total volume administered in the first 24 hours. Once we have the patient resuscitated, we have to give some mind to the evaporative losses that we keep making reference to. How much is this? And to the uninitiated or the, the non-experienced uh, burn provider, this is actually significant. There are two formulas that we, we use to really estimate this. One is based on uh, the mass of the patient, uh, kilos, which is the, the Galveston formula, which is roughly 5 liters per meter squared plus 2 uh, liters per meter squared. I'm sorry, that 5 liters is per meter squared burned. Uh, so you, you look at roughly what your evaporative losses are. They're, they're basically doubled based on the amount of burn you have. There's a, there's a Cincinnati maintenance formula for evaporative fluid losses, and that's roughly your percentage of burn plus 35, and then you multiply that by your square meters for 24 hours and add that by another 1,500 per meter squared. Uh, or basically a, a simple rule is 1,6 mLs per kilo per TBSA burns. A lot of numbers. Uh, what does it really translate into? Is that really between 1 and 6 cc's per kilo per TBSA per, uh, burn is what your evaporative losses are going to be. So the patient is going to have significant increases in the amount of fluids that they're going to need over a 24-hour period. Now how you determine that or calculate that is you have to continue to look at things like your urine output and some various uh, um, uh, clinical uh, parameters as, as capillary perfusion, where the patient's clearing their acid. Now we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about inhalation injury. Respiratory complications from inhalation of toxic fumes are the leading cause of death following burns and have a rather significant mortality rate between 30 and 40 percent. Smoke inhalation is a greater predictor of mortality than the age of the patient and the percentage of the burn. People who you should be suspicious of are an inhalation injury are those who are finding a confined space. You find them and they're confused and agitated. They have burns of the face or chest, singeing of the brows or nasal hair, soot the sputum, hoarseness, loss of voice, or strider. There are really three elements of an inhalation injury. That's the thermal element. Next is the asphyxiation. And then there's the delayed toxic-induced lung injury. The actual thermal element of our breathing hot air is not really as much of a significant indicator or a significant problem as you might think. Really, air can be broken down into two types. There's dry air and steam. Dry air is a very poor conductor of heat. It usually will cause upper airway burns or edema proximal to the vocal cords. The other element is that the vocal cords reflexively adduct in the face of an inhalation injury. Now, steam is a very good conductor of heat. Uh, and will result in significant injury, uh, fatal injury often, uh, to the lungs if inhaled. 
there have been animal studies done with pigs uh, where uh, you look at um, 300 degree uh, centigrade. Um, Air that's 300 degrees centigrade is cooled to 50 degrees centigrade by the time it reaches the larynx. And that was more, it's demonstrated that in 1945, that the vocal cords reflexively had docked about 150 degrees, and that steam has about 4,000 times the heat carrying capacity of dry air. Now, your asphyxiants are things like uh, carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. Carbon monoxide, we know, uh, binds uh, strongly to hemoglobin. Uh, it also interacts with mitochondrial AA3. Below a lethal level of 6%, carbon monoxide does not predict which patients will live or die. Things to keep in mind is you must treat a patient with carbon monoxide toxicity different than you would somebody who has an isolated carbon monoxide toxicity, somebody who perhaps has a bad furnace in their house or uh, from a bad car exhaustion, a person who has multi-system injuries from a burn uh, or a significant burn with a complex inhalation injury. There are significant limiting factors of putting a patient like that in, say, a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Um, the way to really treat carbon monoxide poisoning is oxygen. Patients will often have a, uh, uh, symptoms of headache, confusion, and coma. If they're burned, all of these uh, indicators are going to be clouded by the fact that they're going to be in excruciating pain or maybe unconscious uh, or rendered uh, deeply sedated because of the treatment of their burns. The hyperbaric oxygen for inhalation injury the complexity of that is uh, having full access to the patient. The New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2002 um, published a, a, a paper by Weaver and colleagues, Hyperbaric Auction for Acute Carbon, Acute Carbon Monoxide Poisoning. Patients in that study got three therapies in the first 24 hours, reduced cognitive sequela by 46% at six weeks. Those with impairment had moderate to severe impairment, 20% fell below the 5th percentile, a third fell below the 16th percentile. But there are real uh, logistical issues in putting patients who might be covered at the 40% burn, have inhalation injury uh, where they're uh, sloughing their uh, mucosa, have a lot of uh, airway plugging and so forth in uh, a hyperbaric chamber. Now cyanide gas is produced from the products of incomplete combustion of plastics and polyurethane. Cyanide binds to cytochrome AA3 in the final step of oxidative phosphorylation. So what this does is this shuts down the process of oxidative phosphorylation or the, uh, the electron transport chain. Therefore, this shuts down the Krebs cycle and it pushes the organism into anaerobic metabolism, resulting in excess lactate production and metabolic acidosis. This results in cellular asphyxia despite adequate arterial oxygen. Now, the difficulty is, is that uh, it's very difficult to diagnose uh, cyanide toxicity because you really can't get a level. A level may take, might require going to a reference lab. It may take several days. So frequently what we'll do is we will draw arterial blood gases and venous blood gases, and we will look at a venous blood gas. And if a patient has a very high oxygen saturation on the venous blood gas, that's indicating that the blood is leaving the uh, right side of the circulation, going out to the peripheral circulation, where... Um, the uh, hemoglobin is not being deoxygenated and returning the blood back, um, uh, basically hyperoxygenated. And the reason for that is, as we stated, that the cyanide is basically poisoning oxidative phosphorylation, and the blood is coming back superoxygenated. You can get a, you can, um, will get a, a anion gap metabolic acidosis with an elevated uh, venous saturation. Traditionally, in the United States, we've used a cyanide antidote kit. 
sometimes also known as the Lilly Kit. This uh, creates a state of met hemoglobinemia. Uh, more recently in the United States, we have a, a, a chelator that will chelate the cyanide, uh, which is much safer. The third element of an uh, inhalation injury is this delayed toxic-induced lung injury. After a period of a honeymoon period of, say, of, of 48 or even 72 hours, the patient will begin to have sloughing of the respiratory mucosa, uh, resulting in uh, cellular debris, damage to the new normal mucociliary escalator, and a condition of severe retrograde bronchorrhea. Clinically, these patients may act very much like a patient who has severe cystic fibrosis where you've got all of this debris. Uh, this creates air trapping, atelectasis, and, and uh, VQ mismatching. During the initial treatment of a patient who has respiratory failure, or excuse me, uh, inhalation injury, they may have a normal chest X-ray. The retrograde bronchorrhea may create alveolar flooding, and this on a chest X-ray may appear very similar to pulmonary edema. But this is pulmonary edema from alveolar flooding retrograde uh, down the uh, um, uh, alveolar uh, down the uh, respiratory tree. This is not from hydrostatic pulmonary edema like you'd see in congestive heart failure. Withholding fluids in this situation actually will aggravate the injury as the white cells will have increased transit time and their uh, toxic metabolites will result in further damage to the lung parenchyma. We clearly recommend treatment to a burn center. We have unique modes of ventilation for this. Um, one such mode is volume diffusive respiration. Bill Chaffee has published, uh, and Dave Mazingo have published some uh, good series on this showing uh, decreased uh, morbidity, decreased rate of pneumonia with the use of the VDR. VDR is volume diffusive respirator, or more frequently known as high frequency percussive mode of ventilation. We can go on, uh, there are several other topics that we haven't for the sake of time. Uh, in this particular podcast, I've covered ideas of electrical injuries uh, and chemical injuries, uh, which are will be have to cover uh, at, at another time. This is Jeff Guy. This is the podcast. Surgery ICU rounds. Thank you.